Evening, everybody. To start this off, I want to share another little story with you here. In 1978, during the firemen's strike in England, the British Army took over emergency firefighting. And on January 14th, they were called out by an elderly lady in South London to help rescue her cat. So the firefighters arrived quickly and carefully rescued the cat. And the lady was so grateful that she wanted to invite the firefighters in for some tea. So they obliged, they went in, they had some tea together. And afterwards, they were starting to drive off and waving their goodbyes. And they didn't notice, but they ran over the cat that they had just rescued and uh, killed the cat. Nailed it, right? Uh, so over the last two weeks, we've been learning about Gideon and how God used him to deliver the Israelites from their oppressors. So Gideon, in similar fashion, is going to drop the ball at the end of his journey here in Judges chapter 8. So what I believe that we can learn from this chapter is that we need to be constantly aware of our own motivations as we live for God. So let's find out how Gideon's story plays out. We're going to be in Judges chapter 8 tonight, and just a reminder that I am reading from the ESV translation of the Bible. So let's start in verse 1. Then the men at Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So as we read in chapter 7 last week, Ephraim joined the fight against Midian when Gideon called out to them. Yet they were upset that Gideon didn't call them before the battle started. So Gideon's initial call for help went out to his own tribe, Manasseh, and the tribes of Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali. And it would actually make sense that he didn't reach out to them because he ended up removing soldiers and not adding more. And something to know about Ephraim is that they were a proud tribe, second only to Judah out of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they could actually claim Joshua among their number, which you can read about in Numbers 13, verse 8. So some scholars believe Ephraim's dispute with Gideon may have had to do more with dividing up the spoils of war afterwards. But no matter the reason for the feud, it was Ephraim's pride that fueled this dispute. So it was actually pretty smart of Gideon not to invite them in the first place. Because when Gideon whittled down the number of soldiers and told the fearful to go home, the men of Ephraim probably would have thrown a bigger fit than they would have. And it's kind of like having the most athletic kid in the schoolyard getting picked for a sports team and then being told, like, yeah, we don't need you, never mind. It's like, what? What do you mean you don't need me? I'm the best. I would be a great asset to your help. Like, that's probably the attitude they would have had. So probably worked out that they weren't invited there. And the men of Ephraim seemed to care more about recognition than the overall good of Israel. Instead of being jealous about the recognitions that others received, they should have been happy that God's people were rescued and that they had some part in the victory. So pride and jealousy often hinders the work of God. And last week we talked about the difference between the two forms of pride, self-exaltation and self-deprecation or low self-esteem. And here the men of Ephraim are erring on the side of self-exaltation. 
So we should be mindful of our own pride and bring it to God before it becomes an issue that affects other people. So in this situation, Gideon responded diplomatically and satisfied the Ephraimites with a clever compliment, the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim versus the grape harvest of Abiezer. So here Gideon is referring to the lives and the spoils that the Ephraimites took from the fleeing Midianites compared to the Midianites that Gideon and his 300 men had defeated and slain. Gideon is saying to the Ephraimites that their victory was better because they got more out of it. They killed two top Midianite commanders, Oreb and Zeb. And Gideon could have used his position and a newfound authority to put down the Ephraimites, but he chose a better way. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In our own lives, it can be difficult not to retaliate when being harshly confronted. But even Jesus talks about this idea in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 38 and 39. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So later on in this chapter, in chapter 8 of Judges, we're going to see how the first part of that verse, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, plays out in its historical context. Because Judges is based in the time period in the Old Testament when the Old Covenant was established with Israel. And God's rule was through the Levitical law. But Jesus here is addressing people under the realm of the New Covenant where the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is addressing the need for true transformation here versus mere rule-keeping. So the Sermon on the Mount was a sermon Jesus gave to legalistic Jews who thought that by keeping the entirety of the Levitical law perfectly would gain God's favor. So here Jesus is saying to go beyond what the letter of the law says and to focus on the internal heart posture and seeing how that affects the motivations in their own minds. And when Jesus speaks of slapping, he's referring to personal slights of any kind. The slap doesn't have to involve literal physical violence. Turning the other cheek does not imply pacifism or allowing ourselves to be abused or letting others be abused. But even in our modern day, the phrase a slap in the face is a metaphor for an unexpected insult or offense. So did someone call you in an offensive name? Let him, Jesus says. And are you shocked and offended? Don't be. And don't return insult for insult. Turn the other cheek. Jesus' command to turn the other cheek is saying that we shouldn't retaliate personal offenses. That's really difficult. Think about the olden days where men felt like they had to defend their honor and would get into a duel with swords, guns, or, or their fisticuffs. Put them up, fisticuffs, right? Like those old Western films. Well, maybe not the fisticuffs, but think about an old Western film, right? Like, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. That was pretty good, thanks. And uh, here's a question for those guys, right? Can you put your arms out and spin in a circle and not touch anyone else around you? Then the town is probably big enough for the two of you. You just have a problem with your ego. Get that checked out, right? But by turning the other cheek, there probably could have been a lot less blood spilled. So this is what Gideon does here. He forgoes physical violence or an altercation by turning the other cheek. Now, he goes a little bit beyond this by 
turning the other cheek, by complimenting them, but he avoids escalating the situation beyond what was needed. Now, this may not be the case later on in the chapter, but here he does a good job. Way to go, buddy. So, although it was wise that Gideon defeated and deflated the conflict, notice that he doesn't mention the Lord or what he was commanded to do. And this is an interesting turning point in Gideon's story because here it seems that he begins to exclude the Lord in his victory. And you'll see throughout this chapter that there seems to be a divide between what Gideon was doing to obey the Lord and what his motives were inside of his heart. There's no direct command from the Lord for Gideon to do certain things in this chapter. And there's a difference of opinion between scholars about how these things are interpreted. So either way, things start to go downhill in verse 4. So let's pick up there. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmana, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmana already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmana into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So Gideon reaches out for help from the Israelite towns of Succoth and Penuel. Gideon and his men were pursuing the two Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmana, knowing that if they captured and killed them, the enemy's power would be taken down. So Gideon approaches Succoth and Penuel for assistance with provisions. And Gideon isn't even asking them to go on the front line. He's simply asking for some hospitality and provisions to help the army to see their mission through. Back in Deuteronomy 23, the Ammonites and the Moabites, relatives of the Jews through Lot, didn't help Israel with food, and God declared war on them. And elsewhere in Scripture, we see that hospitality is important. Paul in Romans 12:13 says, "Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality." 1 Peter 4:9 says, "Show hospitality to one another without grumbling." Jesus in Matthew 25, 35 through 40 says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And the people responded, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And Jesus responds, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So here, Succoth and Penuel turn their back on the important task of hospitality. And their response is really a response of fear and a lack of faith rather than pride like the Ephraimites earlier. And it partly makes sense that they were fearful because their cities were much closer to the Midianites than most other Israelites. So unlike the western tribes, Succoth and Penuel didn't have the Jordan Valley to provide like a partial buffer from an attack. So these towns were directly exposed to Midianite attack. 
So if Gideon failed to follow through and they were defeated by the Midianites, whoever assisted Gideon and his army could face the consequences of the army once they recuperated. So there's two ways that Succoth and Penuel go wrong by refusing to help Gideon's army. First, they're turning their backs on their brothers and assisting the enemy. They're traitors. You know, there's this unity among the Israelites around this time and a sense of regionalism. They're lacking brotherhood and national responsibility. In the books of Numbers and Joshua before this, there was a great emphasis that was put on the idea of working together for the greater good of Israel. And we see this idea of looking beyond our own wants and needs elsewhere in Scripture. Philippians 2, 3-4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So as Succoth and Penuel should have been thinking of others before their own interests, we need to be thinking of others before ourselves. So how do we actually do that? Well, the first thing is true humility. If pride is either self-exaltation or self-deprecation, humility is seeing ourselves in light of who we are in Christ. And applying the Romans 12.2 principle to our lives, which is being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And when we do that through prayer and scripture, the Holy Spirit will shape our hearts and our minds to think of others first, even if it opposes our sinful default of selfishness. So firstly, they're selfish traitors. First strike. Secondly, they aren't just turning their back on their fellow Israelites, they're turning their backs on the Lord. By turning down Gideon, they have rejected God's appointed leader working under God's authority. Once Gideon tells them that the Lord is the one who is behind him, they could have changed their minds and helped Gideon's army, but they chose not to. So the question may arise, well, why was Gideon threatening them so harshly versus the way that he responded to Ephraim? So the pride of Ephraim was nothing compared to the rebellion of Succoth Penuel. Ephraim was definitely pro protecting their tribal pride, a sin for sure, but not a costly one. Comparatively to Succoth and Penuel, were rebelling against God's chosen leader and assisting the enemy at the same time. Their treason against God and the hardness of their heart towards their brothers was their undoing. So, Gideon issues his threat against them both and moves along with his mission as we pick it up in verse 10. Now, Ziba and Zulmana were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jobagha and attacked the army for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmana fled, and he pursued them, captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmana, and he threw all the army into a panic. So out of the 135,000 men the Midianites started out with, only 15,000 remained. And that 
still may seem like a lot, but let's try to imagine the scale of that loss. Let's say, for instance, uh, you have 135 of your favorite snack, right? I like Swedish fish, so if I had 135 Swedish fish, and then someone took 120 of those away from me, and I was only left with 15, that would be uh, pretty disheartening, wouldn't it? Yeah, don't, don't mess with my snacks. It's serious stuff for me. So the 15,000 remaining troops set up camp, and they were feeling safe. Then seemingly out of nowhere, Gideon and his army attacks the camp. Now, this is a surprise to them because in years past, they probably hadn't have, didn't have anyone that pursued them that far away from their strike zone. So the fact that Gideon and his army chased them all the way down there, they weren't prepared for that. So this is a surprise attack. Now, also remember, Gideon still only has 300 men he's working with. And they're facing off against a much smaller number than the original raid in chapter 7, the full 135,000 soldiers. But facing off against 15,000 is still a feat that would require some massive courage considering the odds, 15,000 versus 300. And they're going in a direct combat this time. So here we see Gideon acting courageously because he has seen the victory from beforehand. Now, this is one area in the chapter where scholars disagree about Gideon's intent. Some scholars see this as Gideon saving the last glory for himself, the capture of the kings. And other scholars see this as Gideon following through on the mission of defeating the Midianites. So no matter what the intent of Gideon is in this section, the Lord allows Gideon to capture the kings, putting the army into panic mode. So let's keep reading to see what happens next in verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmanah, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmanah already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. Does not sound like a fun lesson to be taught. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So Gideon returns to make good on his promise to Succoth and Penuel and starts with Succoth. And he found a young man who was able to give him the names of the 77 leaders in Succoth who had refused to help him and his army. So Gideon punishes them by beating them with thorny branches. Then he moves on to Penuel by breaking down their tower and killing the men of the city. There's quite a departure from the soft-spoken man at the beginning of this chapter and the harsh, seemingly vindictive man later here in the chapter. And this is another area in the chapter where scholars disagree about Gideon's intent. Although it stands to reason that Succoth and Penuel were betraying their country and disobeying God, some scholars see this as having a personal vendetta against these towns that he carries out in this moment. And remember, there's nowhere in this chapter where the Lord commands Gideon to do these things. However, Gideon claims that the Lord will give Ziba and Zalmanah into his hands in verse 7, earlier in the chapter. So, I personally, I'd recommend you go back and reread this chapter, pray on it, and make a determination for yourself. 
So Gideon is supposed to be the good guy in this narrative. We want him to be a perfect servant of the Lord that has a neatly organized character development, and we want heroes with pure motives that we can look up to. But that's not how humans work. When you read a good story or you see a movie, they generally have this, you know, this Mary Sue who, who gets all these great powers and responsibility, and oh, they're growing, they're growing, and then the, the peak of the story, oh, they defeat the bad guy, whatever, and then they live happily ever after their life, they become the mentor of their village or, or whatever it is, right? But Gideon's journey, if you remember from the previous two chapters, is more like looking like the stock market than, you know, a straight, nice arch. He's all over the place. At one moment, he's trusting God, and another moment, he's doubting. And then in another moment, he needs two more tests. And then the Lord reassures him. He's just up, down, up, down. That's more realistic to how we humans operate. Here's a story to put this in perspective. So, Timmy was a good young man who did his best to obey his parents. He did what he was told when he was told to do it. One day, he was having a hard time, and his parents asked him to do some chores that he didn't really want to do. But Timmy smiled and went about doing the chores. But in his heart, he was upset, and he didn't want to do the chores. So while he was outside raking the leaves in the yard, his father walked by him and heard Timmy talking under his breath. Stupid chores. I hate chores. I'd rather be doing anything else but these chores right now. All my friends are out partying, and I'm just here doing stupid... And when Timmy's dad heard this, it broke his heart because he delighted in the fact that his son was responsible and willing to help around the house. So when Timmy was done, he went inside to tell his parents that all his chores were done. And Timmy actually did an excellent job with these chores. Everything was looking prim and proper. So he still got his allowance. But the father knew that Timmy hadn't obeyed him completely like he had expected. So in our own lives, we rarely approach things with 100% correct motives, even if we're trying to walk in obedience to the Lord. I mean, how easy is it for us to talk the talk, but not walk the walk? We can easily speak about humility, but practice pride. We can outwardly do the things that the Lord is asking us to do, but we can still be wrestling with our own motives in our hearts. We must be constantly taking ourselves before the throne of God and seeking out the difference. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So earlier in the psalm, the author, David, affirms that God knows everything about him because he created David. And now he's asking the Lord, investigate my life, cross-examine and test me. I need you to look into my heart and see if I've done anything wrong. Then guide me on the road to eternal life. Guide me because I can't do it alone. We should have the same attitude towards God because we are human We are weak, we have mixed motivations at best, and we're selfish and prideful at worst. Chief of sinners, right here. But when we come to terms with that weakness of ours, 
we can understand just how gracious God is toward us. So we need to be mindful of our motivations and be bringing these things to God. So, after Gideon deals with Succoth and Penuel, he turns his attention to Ziba and Zalmanah in verses 18 through 21. So let's pick it up there. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmanah, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmanah said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmanah, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. So Ziba and Zalmona are at the mercy of Gideon, and Gideon takes the opportunity to ask them what happened to his brothers. It's not stated in the text anywhere else, but apparently Ziba and Zalmona had killed Gideon's brothers at one point. So it's not known exactly when this happened, but according to Mosaic law, a person had the right to avenge their fallen family member. Remember the whole an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth thing Jesus mentioned in his sermon? Well, that's where this comes into play within its historical context. So during the early years of Israel, there was no police system in the land, and each family was expected to track down and punish those who had murdered their relatives, if the culprit was actually guilty. And you can read more about this in Numbers 35, 9-34, and it's the section where they're talking about cities of refuge and the avenger of blood. And Cody actually taught on this when we were going through numbers, so that is available on our website. I would highly recommend checking it out. But in the case of Ziba and Zalmana, the culprits were not only murderers, but also enemies of Israel. So back in those days, how a soldier died mattered a lot to their reputation. So to have a kid kill the king would be the ultimate humiliation. So Gideon told his firstborn son, Jether, to execute the kings. And by doing so, Jether would not only uphold the law, but he would probably be the most popular kid in his class. I mean, most kids are like flexing on their Pokemon card, and he's like, yeah, I illegally killed two kings. Top of that. Right? But that's a lot for a kid, and he was not ready for this. So in response, Ziba and Zomona tell Gideon to do it himself. And some people would believe that Ziba and Zomona preferred to have Gideon kill them because having a kid do it would probably be extremely painful because he probably didn't know how to execute people. So they're like, hey, can you do it instead? Like, I'd rather not have this kid do this, right? But either way, they're like, get at me, bro. Do it yourself. And so Gideon then finishes the job and takes the camel's ornaments, which were valuable because they belonged to the kings. So let's pick it up in verse 22 here. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord 
will rule over you. So here the people of Israel ask Gideon to rule over them. The desire for Israel to have a human king and a dynasty starts pretty early in in the nation's history. Here, Israel wanted to reward Gideon for what he had done, but they also wanted a king because they thought they wouldn't have to deal with these issues under unified leadership. However, Gideon turns them down. The request to make Gideon and his lineage king was a confession of unbelief from the Israelites because God was their king. This was the time of history that God had set it to where he elects certain rulers, but he is the one who rules over the nation, unlike the other nations in the world. So, by asking for Gideon to be a king, Israel was rejecting the Lord as king. Now, human kingship for Israel was not a bad thing, and it was expected that God would give Israel a king at some point. So, God told Abraham in Genesis 17.6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And God said to Jacob in Genesis 35, 11, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings will come from your own body. This can be interpreted as God knowing that their lineage would play out that way and they would have kings, or this can be in reference to the one true king that would come from Abraham's family. So having a king wasn't the problem. The problem was with the motive and the timing of Israel's request. Israel wanted a king in order to be like all the other nations. Back in Deuteronomy 17, the Lord gives Israel a concession knowing that they would want a king. He's like, as soon as these guys settle down, they're going to want a king. I'm smart. I know that. So he gives them a very specific set of instructions as to what that king should look like for the Israelites and what that king was not supposed to do. But a couple hundred years later, in the book of 1 Samuel, God permitted human kingship before the proper time, and he gave them a king. So God had always planned to send Israel a true king through the lineage of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Israel lacked patience. And so often, we look to our earthly leadership for hope and deliverance from bad things in this life. But at the end of the day, no one can be a perfect ruler except for King Jesus. Philippians 2, 6-11 says of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let us learn from the Israelites and wait patiently for the return of our king, Jesus. And if Jesus isn't the king of your life, all you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead, making a proclamation and a choice that Jesus is your king. So if you'd like to chat more about how to do that after the service, please come chat with me. I'll, I'll hang out right here. But getting back to Gideon, let's continue reading, reading to see how leadership moving forward worked out for Israel and Gideon in verse 24. And Gideon said to them, make me, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold beside, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Gideon declared that the Lord would rule. But also, he didn't give the Lord credit for the victory in the Midianites. There's a pattern here. Although Gideon denies the mantle of king, he goes on to live as if he were a worldly king. Now, remember that very specific set of instructions for the kings in Deuteronomy 17 I mentioned a little bit ago? In verses 16 and 17 of Deuteronomy chapter 17, there are specific instructions that are set out for a king of Israel not to do because these things are what the rest of the kings of the world indulged in. So the three things that the Lord didn't want a king of Israel to do was, one, not to require many horses, and horses pulled chariots, iron chariots, and that was basically the tanks of the day. So this equates to not trusting in or building their own military strength since God would fight for them. And the second thing is not to acquire many wives because the Lord didn't want them being led astray by political marriages that could lead to idolatry and also not to break God's design for marriage relationship between one man and one woman. But many kings and powerful people of the day often practice polygamy. And the third thing is that the Lord didn't want them to require and to acquire an excess of silver and gold because the Lord would provide for them. So here we see Gideon acquiring excess of gold and setting himself up for a pretty nice retirement. So at the end of the chapter, we're going to see that Gideon had many wives as well, which doesn't sound like such a nice retirement. But he asks for a favor for the earrings of the Ishmaelites. And upon first glance, it may not seem like much to ask for the earrings, yet when it was added up, it came out to more than 50 pounds or 22 kilograms of gold. Try benching that. Well, that's actually relatively easy. Anyway, so on top of this, Gideon then creates an ephod. An ephod was a part of the high priest's attire. It was a sleeveless tunic worn over his other garments. And you can read more about that in Exodus chapters 28 and 39. So there's three possibilities to what Gideon's ephod could have been. The first thing is it could have been a garment after the pattern of the high priestly ephod, but with an unusual, an unusual degree of gold ornamentation. The second thing is it could have been a replica of the high priestly garment made of pure gold, 
like one solid unit. And the third thing is that with some other freestanding image. The first two make most sense in my mind, but this became a snare to Gideon's family and to the people of Israel. So, ironically, by the Lord's providence, Gideon led the people out of idol worship and led them right back into it, like the firefighters running over the cat that they rescued. Gideon leads them right back to where they started. And and Gideon may not have had bad intentions by creating the ephod, depending on the nature of the ephod he created, but this was not something commissioned by the Lord. He had already established the Levitical priesthood in Israel. So although through chapters 6 through 8, God spoke directly to Gideon, for such a time as ridding Israel's oppressors and using him as a vessel, that didn't mean that Gideon was supposed to become anything more than an instrument of God's deliverance to the people of Israel. He was used for a purpose, but that doesn't give him some sort of extra special status. This ephod may have been a reflection of Gideon thinking that about himself. And so, this is a warning to us. We must be careful of idolatry in our own lives. And I've noticed that I struggle with idolatry most when I feel deserving of some reward, that by my actions I've somehow earned the right to indulge in the luxuries of life in a selfish and dishonoring way to God. Like, for instance, I'm practicing this whole sermon preaching thing. It's pretty fun, but uh, it's kind of mentally exhausting. So uh, after the third week here, I might feel like, you know what, I'm going to go home, I'm going to down a whole gallon of ice cream and watch Star Wars till my eyes bleed. But, uh, you know, maybe that's not the best thing to do, right? But these are the moments when I view myself outside of my identity in Christ. We as believers should be humble servants who deserve nothing, but are given everything in Christ. So let's finish up this chapter by continuing in verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash his father at Ophrah of the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their god, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. And they lived not so happily ever after the end. Go home. But good thing this isn't the end of the story in the Bible. So the land rested from oppression and war for 40 years following Gideon's victory. This is actually the last period of peace that the writer of Judges mentions. So then we see that Gideon had many wives and children, 
It's going back to the whole, I'm not a king, but I'm going to act like a king. Having many wives and children was often a way to flaunt wealth, almost as if to say, look at all the wives and children I could support. So the Old Testament never directly condemns polygamy. However, the New Testament does. In Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular, wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So when stories of polygamy do occur in the Old Testament, such as with Jacob or David, there's always conflict and crisis. And we didn't even have television crews to capture all the drama. Oh man, TLC, that would have been a great show. And we're going to see how polygamy turns out for Gideon's family in chapter 9. And spoiler alert, it, uh, it doesn't go well. So when Jesus or any, other, any of the other writers of the Scripture in the New Te- Testament mentioned the patriarchs or heroes of the Old Testament, they were using them as examples of faith, not examples of morality. Gideon made it into the hall of faith, not the hall of role models. So that's like when people of status try to tell us how to live their moral lives outside of Christ. Like, I just want to know how you want a Grammy, bro. I don't want to know about your weird scandalous life. Like, you can keep that to yourself, right? (laughs) But it's important that the Bible records all of these people with their flaws because it's historically accurate and we can learn from their mistakes. One thing I really appreciate is when my role models share their mistakes with me. I already understand that they're human, so I don't expect perfection, but God has used those men to make a positive impact on my life. Now, whether or not I actually listen to them is a different story, but I think it's important that we mentor others and be open and vulnerable about our mistakes so that we can learn from each other. So here in the case of polygamy, God may have been permissive of all this sin at certain points in history, but that doesn't make polygamy cease to be sin. God still doesn't like it, and he does not give it his stamp of approval. So Gideon has been flaunting his kingship quote-unquote, by acquiring wealth and having many wives, but he does it again by naming one of his sons Abimelech, which means, my father, a king. So it seems that Gideon may have had an intent of his son ruling Israel after he died. And Gideon does die here at the end of this chapter. Gideon definitely left a legacy for his people, but it doesn't amount to much shortly after his death because as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and forgot God. Nice. Way to stick the landing, right? And uh, the Israels also didn't show steadfast love to the family of Gideon in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. That's super depressing. So through Gideon's time as a vessel of God's deliverance, we see Gideon as a man who grew to great heights of faith and then fell to rebellion against God. Success, riches, and affluence brought him down by his own doing. We don't have to make the same mistakes. As Andrew Bernard said, 
Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. So the bottom line is, we need to constantly be aware of our own motivations as we live for God. Jake, why don't you come, by, come on up? So you may be experiencing some of the most difficult things you've ever gone through in your life. How are you responding to God? What's your motivation? You may be having some of the best moments of your life. Are you praising God? Are you avoiding idolatry? Or maybe you're somewhere in between. How does God fit into that picture? So as we wrap up our time, I encourage you with this question. How am I responding to God in this season of my life? I encourage you to ask yourself that question. How am I responding to God in this season of life? So I leave you with this benediction from Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your recorded history here in Scripture. We thank you that you have so many valuable lessons for us to learn. Lord, I pray that in the imperfection and weakness that we all experience as humans, that we would learn to trust and obey you, that we would learn to evaluate the motivations of our heart and bring those things to you in humility, Lord. Teach us humility. Teach us how to walk this tightrope. It's difficult, but it's worth it. We pray and we ask that as we leave this place tonight, that you would continue to minister to us, Lord. Continue to shape us and mold us. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as I mentioned before, maybe Jesus isn't your king. But if you want to have that conversation, please come chat with me. Jake, take it away.